Hello, and welcome to Just Make The Thing. I'm your host, Claire Tonti, and this podcast is for people like me who want to start a thing and keep on making it. A few months ago, I interviewed the indomitable Jamila Risby about a thing she made, her book called Not Just Lucky. Jamila is an incredibly accomplished leader, host, interviewer, columnist, author, and human. In 2014, she was named as one of Cosmo's most successful women under 30. She has been editor-in-chief at the Mamma Mia Women's Network, as well as political advisor to both Australian Prime Ministers Kevin Rudd and Australia's first female PM, Julia Gillard. What stood out to me, though, when I met her was her humour, her razor-sharp focus, and her frankness about everything from writing her book to the idea of childbirth as going to war, an idea I wholeheartedly agree with. Her book is for any woman who has ever suffered a crisis of confidence at work and teaches how to start fighting for your own success and a more inclusive, equal workplace for everyone. It made me think just how often I attribute success, whether it's at work or in relationships, to luck, when actually it's a lot of bloody hard work. I think it's time women own their success, I reckon. And in the climate we're in at present, now more than ever, we need people like her fighting the good fight for equality. So here's Jamila Risby, a warrior for women everywhere. What a legend. What made you write this book? I've never been one of those people who like grew up being like, oh, I think I've got a book in me. Like, I, just, <laughs> yeah. I was never someone who sort of dreamed of writing a book. It wasn't really on my on my bucket list in any way. But I've always loved to read and I've always been quite a ferocious reader. Mm. And I particularly love uh, books about careers and books about women. Mm. But at the same time, I've always been slightly frustrated by them. Yes. Um, partly because most career books for women are written – by women who are at the peak of their careers who have kind of already made it mm. and they're looking back on their career and going, here's how you can be more like me. Mm. And while I find those women fascinating and interesting and inspiring, I often find their advice just doesn't fit with my world mm. and my yeah. kind of ordinary life. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, you sort of sit there and I like I remember reading Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg and and really responding to parts of it and not liking others as much. Um, and then there's a moment where she refers to the night nanny and I'm yeah. like, oh, <laughs> Oh, well then. Yes, <laughs> know, that's where we are. And then there's, you know, then there's Ariana Huffington who talks about the importance of taking a day off a week to meditate and volunteer for things. And I, and I sort of sit there going, well, that sounds lovely, but like I've got to get paid yeah. <laughs> um, because my salary feeds my family. Um, so I wanted to write a book that was about careers and drew on all the research and the issues around women and confidence and looked at how women could build their own careers but also build more inclusive workplaces for women generally but that was written by a mate um, mm. rather than someone who'd already made it. So someone who was kind of just like you, who'd had a couple of little successes but also had some big failures and didn't really know what they were doing either. Mm. So I wanted that kind of more friendly tone. And that totally comes across. You oh, do, good. You read it and you feel like, how did you know that I was thinking that? Yeah, good, <laughs> you know? good. That's it really exactly comes, what I want. And it's funny and, and still really insightful and clever and celebrates women too. What was it like to write a book? Because I've never done that. Um, yeah, no, nor had I. Um, it was 
way harder than I expected, <laughs> um, which is really pathetic. Um, I think I just went into it quite naively because I write columns for newspaper. Mm. So I write a couple of columns a week. So I'm very used to writing in that format of kind of 800 to 1,000 words. Mm. I bang it out very quickly. Like I can write a column in 45 minutes if I need to. Don't tell my editors that. they pay me less. <laughs> Most of the time it does take me a bit longer. But I can write quite quickly. And mm. I kind of went, oh, a book – that's just 100 columns. It can't be that hard, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and the book is, it's about 90,000 words, so it's about 100 columns. And I stupidly <laughs> thought that that was what I was doing, that I would kind of just each day be sitting down to write what was essentially a column. But the work of threading the information together, the research side, and it's a very research-intensive mm. book. I've kind of gone nuts with the with the footnotes and the endnotes. <laughs> There's a lot in there. And making that all flow together and fit together and avoiding being repetitive and making your points clearly and succinctly but making sure a whole narrative runs through a book and kind of keeping the same tone through a book mm. is really hard. That was something I totally didn't expect, that my own mood would affect – different parts the of the book like if I woke up and I had a grumpy day yeah if you're writing a column well the column's slightly grumpier than usual right yeah. but when you're writing a book you can't have that you can't have the voice going in and out of different moods unless it sort of suits what you're writing about yeah. so I found that quite complex to navigate did you find it hard taking criticism or not criticism but editing was that how, oh no was that like? no that bit I loved because I used to be an editor so I love being edited I think because oh, I know how good. important that job is and I know that even the best writer in the world cannot edit their own work well mm. it's a very different skill and an editor or like everyone needs an editor anyone who writes like if you think you don't need an editor then what you wrote is probably rubbish. Um, <laughs> you always need someone who's objective, who's coming from the outside, who can be the audience for you, who, mm. because there's so much that's in your head and you tend to assume knowledge. And often I have the problem that sometimes I write faster than I'm thinking. So yeah. I thought something, but I haven't actually got it down on the page and the yeah. column doesn't quite fit together or the book doesn't quite tell the story in a fulsome way, the way it should. Yeah. So no, I really enjoyed the editing process. I wish there'd been more. <laughs> I, from talking to you already, I can see that your brain moves so fast. What's it like to be in your head? I like having lots of people around me and I think my brain works in that way. I'm often having conversations with myself in my head. Mm. I'm someone who very much talks to my own inner voice and that's not healthy. So it's better <laughs> that I have someone else in the room to talk yeah. to. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think that's a wonderful thing about women when you work with women. I used to be a teacher and yeah. so just I was surrounded by women constantly. What are the positives about working with women if you're someone that loves to talk and be around people? Oh, it's just fun, right? You know, when I worked in women's media, every day was fun. I got paid to go in and hang out with my girlfriends and talk about what was happening in the news and what we thought about it. And I'm feeling in a similar way about this book tour because I'm spending all this time just meeting awesome women, right? Like I'm, I'm yeah. literally going all around the country and meeting women at book events who work in different industries, who've had really different experiences, people who agree with content in the book, people who've had experiences that cut against what I argued. And it's it's just a whole lot of fun. I really enjoy the energy of a big group of women. I enjoy the fact that generally I think uh, environments that have more women involved tend to be more open to each other's ideas and different points of view. There's less kind of push, push, listen to me and there's a bit more, oh, we haven't heard from so-and-so. So I think you often tend to get a more more diverse opinions mm. um, when you've got more women in the room. And I enjoy that as well. I think that's how the best decisions are made when you've got a group that have a very different lived experiences mm. between them. 
definitely collaborative and that listen to each other. What is it like working in an all-male environment? Because you've done that too. Yeah, not necessarily all-male, but certainly male-dominated. Yeah. I enjoyed that too. I mean, I loved working in politics just because I love politics. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's definitely, I do think you you toughen, I certainly toughened myself up. I don't want to speak um, for other people, but I really had a sense of I had to be harder, that I had to show less emotional, the of the emotional side of me, mm-hmm. that I had to hide away vulnerabilities. I would often catch myself speaking in very concrete sort of describing situations in win-loss terms and often losing the humanity which I think can be a real problem in politics like when Mm. I look at politicians and the level of our political debate I think we often do harden ourselves and we try to see things in really black and white issues because you're trying to say we're on this side and you're on that side and you're wrong and we're right Mm. rather than seeing the shades of grey and allowing for nuance and allowing for empathy to be involved you know I think we often worry that we talk about empathy in politics and suddenly we're being weak Um, when really I think the most important skill a a politician can have is empathy, empathy with the people who they're supposed to be representing. Oh, 100%. I think even as a human being in life, you know, just being able to understand where someone else is coming from allows you to move forward more easily. What is it that you would like to tell women who are working in that kind of environment that might be male dominated where they feel like they need to be you know hard and you know really ballsy Mm. and out there in that way Mm. I think it's so this is I'm going to depress you for a moment but then I'm going to go to the positive (laughs) I promise my book does a lot of this I go very negative and then I'm Mm. like it's okay some optimism yeah the data tells you that that doesn't work The data tells us that trying to behave in a more, and I'm using inverted commas here with my fingers, masculine way as a Mm. leader or a manager in a workplace doesn't work for women because success and likability for women don't correlate in workplaces. So what that means is that both men and women employees don't often react well to a woman boss who displays more masculine leadership style. Mm. The converse of that is that women who display a more feminine leadership style are often considered weak and ineffective. So Mm. the reality is you're really damned if you do and damned if you don't. So if you are explicitly trying to sort of push for what we traditionally call a masculine leadership style, you're going to get pushback. If you are trying to adopt a more feminine leadership style, you're going to get pushback anyway. So when you're in a catch-22 situation like that, which is completely unfair and not your fault, I generally think the best advice is to just be you (laughs) and most of us sit somewhere between those two extremes and I think like in all things diversity is important and diversity in leadership styles is a good thing so I think the best thing you can do is kind of push through and try and be as authentic as possible and I know that sounds a bit you know Pollyanna be you live your best life (laughs) and I'm I'm not trying to say that at all but the reality for women is that we still very much operate in a very gendered workforce and that affects us in a whole lot of ways that we don't necessarily realise. And one of them is this obsession with looking for approval at work and wanting to be liked Mm. and wanting people to tell us we're doing a good job Um, when really the important thing is that you're respected and that you do a good job, not that you're seen to be doing a good job. Um, So I think part of it is finding the confidence within yourself to say, look, this world is going to cut against me and punish me for behaving in any way, so I may as well behave as me <laughs> yeah. because it's the easiest thing to I do. I may as well just be myself. It's way yeah, less complicated. Yeah, don't waste the effort of trying to be, you know, it's exhausting. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I saw an interview with Oprah where she actually said her greatest 
strength in in who she was really or what she's given is just being herself yeah and being so fully herself that people can empathize with her yeah and still respect her and see her as a leader I really admire her as someone like that that's managed to be strong but also vulnerable at the same time yeah I think I think that's true and I think I mean People have a really good – am I allowed to swear? Oh, definitely. People have a really good bullshit radar, right? Yeah, yeah. People know when you're not being you and especially in the media, um, I, I find that people know straight away when you're putting on a face and I catch myself doing it sometimes. I'll do FM radio and I'll kind of go into jokey, funny, silly girl, <laughs> FM radio sort of style and I'm like, yeah. hold on, that's not me actually and then I'll go and do like a Q&A and a current affairs program and I try and be super serious and you know no jokes straight down the line kind of you know yeah. angry strident activist feminist person <laughs> which is also not me I'm a mixture you know yeah. and human beings are contradictions and we're a little bit of everything so I and I think people appreciate it when you're just you um mm. and so I think as hard as that is, because it, it sounds easy, but it's actually really hard mm. to just be the most natural version of yourself or at least the most comfortable version, version of yourself. You know mm. how you have those friends, they're often school friends or friends you've been around for a long time where the kind of people where you never have to tell them the backstory, yeah. like you can <laughs> yeah. just launch straight into conversation because yeah. they already know all the backstory. Yeah. I think I always try and think of how I am with those people. Yeah. Those people who I'm not trying to impress anymore, who I'm not trying to win over, who I'm not trying to be specifically entertaining or intelligent in front of, who I can just be me around. That's the version of me that I'd like to be in my whole life. Yeah. Sort of that's what I'm chasing. Yeah. I think that sounds like a great idea. And where do you get your drive and your persistence from? Because obviously you've got a hell of a lot of it. Yeah. I, I'm, de- I'm definitely a quite a driven person. I think part of it is that I I'm very easily bored, <laughs> which I don't know if that's a good trait, um, but I'm, I am a very easily bored person. I don't like being on my own. I'm not yeah. very comfortable at being on my own. Um, and I, yeah, I get bored when I'm not doing much. I'm like, I'm someone who's always multi-screening. I like to be doing something in mm. front of the television, that kind of stuff. I like, yeah. I like to have lots of things going on. Lots of tabs open at all at once. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm a shocker for that. So I think for me, a lot of it comes from trying to fight the boredom, which is probably not the healthiest <laughs> thing in the world. Um, but I, I like to be doing lots of things and I have always I asked my mum what I was like as a kid and she says the thing that stands out above everything else is that I was just really enthusiastic about everything whether I was good at it or rubbish at it um (laughs) that I liked having a go at stuff and I I think that's just sort of still who I am like I still like having a go at stuff I really like it if it turns out that I'm good at it but (laughs) um I'm often really bad at it and I'm kind of okay with I'm getting better at being okay with that um I just like to keep trying things and doing things and one of the one of the things that I find comforts me in terms of sort of warding off fear of failure or getting it wrong is to have lots of things going on so that if I've got lots of projects on the go then if one of them screws up or falls over or it's a disaster well that's okay because I've got other things going on in my life Um, whereas if that was the single thing I was throwing everything at that would be devastating. Yeah. Yeah is that something you've developed over time that that strategy or not not by any kind of um, like it wasn't deliberate, I suppose. A part of it was, I think, starting freelancing about a year and a half ago. Um, freelancing involves a lot of hustling, um, and mm. because you chase so many projects, and only you know one in twenty of them actually ever comes off, and you have these discussions and these meetings, and everyone talks with all this excitement, 
and a lot of them will just never come to anything. Ah, oh, that happens to us all that the you've time. You've got to be used to disappointment, <laughs> right? You've got to get used to rejection and you've got to get used to kind of just hustling all the time and always thinking, where's my next job coming from? Where's my next paycheck coming from? What am I doing? So I think that's really kind of how I've kind of made it something that is part of my everyday approach now is because it was more out of necessity. Like I think you have to when you're working in that kind of environment. Just focus on the work, keep on barreling along rather yeah. than dwelling on the things that didn't work out. Yeah, because you've got to be yeah. able to go, oh, well, next. My sister's an actress and she talks about it with auditions that you can't let your heart get completely set on getting a part because so many of them are not going to come off and you've got to be ready to just be rejected a lot. Yeah, right. And and you've actually just got to be ready to fail a lot. Yes. If you want to succeed or do something, I think yeah. that's something I'm starting to learn. It's, yeah. it's such a – so there's a, a, one of the best studies I read – I have so many favourite studies that I read for my <laughs> book, but there was I came across this psychologist called Carol Dweck and she's really interesting. She talks about the two mindsets people get into, the fixed mindset mm. and the growth mindset. Love I don't know it. if you've covered this I on love the podcast it. before. We haven't and I'm a massive fan of her when I was teaching. Oh, there you go. Love it. She, yeah, she talks about it a lot with schools and she talks about this idea of fixed mindset and growth mindset. So fixed is you believe that intelligence, aptitude, abilities are pretty much fixed. Like, yeah, you can, you know, do some training and some education and get a bit better at something, sure, but really this kind of stuff is kind of you're good at things and you're bad at things and that's how life goes. And most yeah. of us do tend to get into that mindset. It's a really easy trap to get into. The growth mindset says, well, the purpose of me being around on this planet is to keep trying new things and learning new things and having a go at new things. What's the point of just doing stuff that you're already good at, right? You should keep trying new things to develop and learn and improve your skills. And it assumes that intelligence isn't fixed. You can always become better at something and try something new. And that sounds kind of like airy-fairy and obvious, but she uses this example, which I really like, which is that they got all these groups of four-year-olds and did this study on them. And they gave all these little kids a puzzle and it was quite an easy puzzle and they got to do the puzzle. And then after they'd finished, she said to the group, now, would you like to do the same puzzle again? Or would you like to do a different, much harder puzzle? And the kids would split roughly half and half every time she did this experiment. And the kids that wanted to do the same puzzle again had quite a fixed mindset. So they were, they had big fear of failure. They didn't want, they thought smart kids didn't get things wrong. So they were like, Mm. I'll just keep doing this puzzle. Um, And they were very much looking for the approval of the teachers and the parents in the room. They wanted people to see them being able to do the puzzle. Mm. So they were like, well, I'll do the same one because I already know how to do that. And the other kids, the kids who had this growth mindset were completely baffled and perplexed by the other kids and were just like, why would you do the same puzzle? Like you already know how. That's stupid. Um, And it's such a good contrast because when I I look at that, I go, all right, well, how much of my day, how much of my working day, not even work, right? How much of my life Mm. is spent doing things I already know I'm good at? Like a lot of it. Yeah, like it's I, great. I'm doing the same puzzle a lot yeah. <laughs> like, um, because yeah. it's comfortable and it's nice and I know I'm not going to mess it up and people yeah. will tell me I'm good at it. But why do I need people to tell me I'm good at the same thing again and again and again? Yeah. I already know I'm good at that. So why not try a new puzzle? So anyway, yeah. that's how I, I try really hard. And I get this wrong a lot, but I try really hard when I'm asked to do something new or deliver my work in a new way or research a new area or write about something I don't know much about to kind of think about the four-year-olds and the puzzles and be like, stop trying to 
do the same puzzle. Yeah. Do a try, new puzzle. Try a new puzzle. Try a new puzzle. Okay, I'm going to take that away today. <laughs> Just try a new puzzle, Claire. Try a new puzzle. That's really good, I think, because we, we grow when we are in that space where it's a bit nerve-wracking and a bit like heart racing. Yeah, when we're learning. Yeah, exactly. And it's frustrating and messy. I saw that a lot in my classrooms. It's hard to learn something new, but otherwise you stagnate and you just become yeah. so depressed and it's not a good space to be in. I wanted to shift slightly now and I wanted to ask you, about a section in your book where you talk about how to be a really good boss. Yeah. I loved that because I often have experienced bosses who have never read anything like that, (laughs) male and female. What is your advice around, because you've been a boss and you've been a leader quite often in your career. What's it like and what is the advice you could give to people? Yeah. Well, there's a whole lot in there, so I won't go into the the detail. There's a whole chapter in the book about how to be a good boss. There's also how to be a good employee to a boss um, and manage up as well as manage Mm. down, which I think is really important. But I think the thing I'd start with is that often you become a manager or you become a leader without anyone teaching you how. Mm. Like often you're just good at sort of the stuff of doing a job. So then they think you're going to be good at helping other people do that Mm. when really you were just good at the stuff of the job and learning to be a manager is a skill in itself and it's hard like it's actually hard management takes a lot of time whenever I've been in managerial or leadership roles the people management side of it has been more than 50% of my job and I think it should be Mm. I think a good leader knows that the most important thing they can do is make sure everyone else in their team is performing well Mm. Um, and to do that people need to feel comfortable and safe and happy there's a whole lot of tips in in that section but I think the one that is probably the most unusual but I think the most (laughs) helpful is to try and be as predictable as possible I love that that was my favorite (laughs) I was going to ask you about that yeah just to be predictable because then I as soon as you said that it twigged in me I thought what was it that I loved the most about bosses I've had who were brilliant and that was it I knew everything was the way it was going to be and I felt safe. It's about safety. So I used to work for um, the communications director in the Prime Minister's office and he, a guy called Lachlan Harris who worked for Kevin Rudd and he used to use this analogy to us and he was saying the most important thing about a political leader, and the Mm. same is true at the micro, is that they're predictable. That if aliens landed on the steps of Parliament (laughs) House tomorrow, you just, you don't actually care that much as a voter you care a bit you don't care that much what the prime minister's going to do but you care that you know what they're going to do like I knew what John Howard would have done he would have got on the phone he would have called George Bush and there would have been guns and nuclear weapons and oh my god those aliens would be dead so fast now maybe I'm an alien pacifist but (laughs) at least I knew what was going to happen and there's a sense of safety in that predictability Mm. a lot of people have said to me since the election of Donald Trump in the states Mm. they feel unsafe that they feel anxious Mm. and I think a lot of that comes from not just people who don't think he's a great leader, which I don't, but he's unpredictable. There's this sense of anything could happen. He could change his mind. Any decision could be made. And that makes people really feel unsafe. So when you're managing a small team, the same rules apply. People feel safe and they feel confident at work when they know where their boundary is, where they know that I can make these sorts of decisions on my own. For these other types of decisions, I have to check in. And where they know the boundaries of their autonomy and they know Mm. that if I mess up in this particular way, my boss is going to react like this. And if I get it right in this particular way, my boss is going to react like that. Whereas if you punish some behavior and you switch between carrot and stick. and 
Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code program. You're inconsistent. That makes people panic. It often makes people not like you and it often makes you very scary. Whereas being consistent and predictable is, I think, the most important trait for a good boss. I know you also worked um, around the time of Julie Gillard. Yeah, she was our first female um, Australian Prime Minister. We have a lot of US listeners. Oh, cool. So um, if you haven't seen her misogyny takedown in the parliament, it's really worth watching. What was it like to work under her and what do you think about her prime ministerial career and how yeah. it all ended? Um, it was a tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> I honestly, I honestly, I remember, um, and I worked for Rudd, I worked for her predecessor and then I worked in her government mm. um, and quite closely with, uh, with her office now and then. Um, I worked for one of her ministers and I had such enormous respect. There was so much potential, I think. I think she could have been one of Australia's great prime ministers, but she was never given the opportunity to be so. I think the nature of the parliament she was operating in most of the time, being on that knife edge, having to win over numerous independents every time she wanted to get legislation through the reps, uh, dealing with um, media coverage that never forgave her for the way she came to power in the first place, Mm. dealing with an electorate who didn't trust her and I think there was some underlying sexism yeah that's what I wanted to ask you about yeah because I was shocked actually by the way she was treated and spoken about uh, to do and I don't think it was only about her being a woman but I guess it's the same with Hillary Clinton it was a layer yeah it was an element and I think she acknowledged that so the night she stepped down she said that gender doesn't explain everything and it doesn't explain nothing it explains some things Mm -hmm. um and I think that's absolutely true and I think that's often an experience a lot of women have in the workplace right is that when we talk about sexism and gendered workplaces it's very hard at that micro level at that individual level to go Mm. that that there that was sexist Mm. like unless there's a really obvious instance of sexual harassment it's really hard to go that that was sexist this is sexist that promotion that person's promotion was sexist that was that's really hard to identify because there are always 10,000 you know different uh, people who are playing and influences on people and the micro of, you know, de- the cut and thrust of human relations. Yeah. What we, the reason we know that sexism is occurring is when you draw out and when you, when you bring the camera back and you go to the wide shot and you see a world where the results for women from workplaces are still really unfair yeah. um, and that at that macro level, women are still very much being held back. Mm. Have um, you experienced that kind of sexism on a micro level? In your career? Yeah, I, th- I think so. Again, I think it's really hard to identify and, and call to individual moments. But, um, you know, I, I remember working for a period where only the media assistants who were women never had to get the dry cleaning for our bosses. Mm. And, you know, I um, have definitely had moments in meetings where I've been teased for having taken a particularly femis- feminist approach to something, like that's a bad thing. Definitely sat around 
during sexist jokes. Um, mm. I've definitely been propositioned at work, you know, like so <laughs> yeah. th- th- there's definitely stuff. But it can be I think uh, what a lot of women and men struggle with is that sometimes this stuff is really hard to define at that micro level and hard to talk about at mm. that micro level. It's it's similar to the gender pay gap thing, right, in that a lot of uh, people will go, how can there be a gender pay gap? Like I go to work and I'm Jack and Jill sits next to me and we get paid the same for the same job. There's no gender pay gap. Everyone shut up. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. the data tells us there's most definitely a gender pay gap. Um, in some industries, some parts of the country, it's up to 30% uh, wow. difference between what men and women are being paid. It's mm. that it's more complex than that. It's more nuanced than that. And I think we we often struggle with the complexities of understanding that nuance. Absolutely. Um, you're a mum too and yes. a parent, just like me. As someone who went from being you know, so busy with her career, what was the transition to motherhood like for you? Abrupt. <laughs> and yeah, it is right. Yeah. If I was giving myself a score for transition, it would be in the like one star range. <laughs> it was, um, I did not transition well. I um, I sort of just, most of the pregnancy, I was just in denial. Mm. Like I just refused. I flew up until I was about seven and a half months pregnant um, until the doctors were like, you cannot fly yeah. anymore. Um, I worked until literally the day before he was due. Wow. Um, I went into labor after a day of work. I like I just kind of pretended it wasn't happening yeah. <laughs> as my way yeah. of dealing as my way of dealing with pregnancy. And then for me that meant I went from there was no kind of period of slowdown. There was no period of getting ready or even adjusting my mind. I went from everything work to everything baby. Oh my god, that was I you know, you it's you know what just it's like. The most you can't tell someone what labor's going to be like. No, you can't tell it's someone fucked. What, that's <laughs> what. <laughs> No one tells you. Like it is no. going. It's like going to war. It is like, the with closest, your body. Yeah, the closest to death I have ever been. Oh, the only time in my life I've ever wished for death. Like I remember just being like, "I'm done now." Like you can have the baby. That's fine. But I would like to die now, please. Yeah. This is awful. Yeah. And the most brutal part is that you go through this like horrendous thing that you were not expecting, and then you can't sleep. Yes. And everyone comes over, yes. and you've got to you. feed this thing every like three hours. Oh man. I, I think one of the biggest shocks I got it post birth was that they didn't take him away. <laughs> I watched too much American television. Yeah. So yeah. I just assumed that after you gave birth they took the baby and put them in one of those rooms you see on Grey's yeah, Anatomy yeah. with all the babies and in you them. get to sleep for a while. And I gave birth at the Royal Women's in Melbourne where they room in with you. And oh so like God. the birth happened and you know a few hours later everything's left and then they tell my husband to go home and then they just leave me in a room with a baby. And I'm like, <laughs> excuse me. I don't think you realise, but I've been awake for 32 hours and I really need a sleep. So maybe you could take this away. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Oh, God. So it was a shock. Okay. would be my answer. I I really – I found those first six weeks – I think they're brutal for everyone, but Mm. I really found them incredibly brutal despite the fact I had – you know, by by all accounts, a fairly easy baby to look yeah. after. So it was clearly just me not adjusting well. Um, I was in shock, I think, and I was really angry. Like I, I <laughs> it sounds so silly saying all of this now, but um, I was angry at the world. I was angry at the system. I was angry at yeah. biology. I yes! was angry at my husband who just got to just go back to work yes! and just oh, do his thing. Exactly. Um, and you know, like I, 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 I yeah, I, ha- I think I had a lot of rage. Yeah. I think it took me quite a while to get past the rage. I can still tap into that rage. <laughs> when I watched The Handmaid's Tale, yeah, 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 it is. I watched The Handmaid's Tale and was just raging, just raging at biology, particularly. Yeah. Like women get so many raw ends of the stick. Oh, massively. Oh. My mum said to me when I was about eleven that if she could come back 
she she could be reincarnated she'd be reincarnated as a man and I remember really thinking she was strange for saying yeah. that and now I'm like oh yeah no, yeah. that's a pretty sweet deal being a bloke like you get the babies you get all the fun stuff but you don't have to do anything no exactly exactly though I do like I read um the wife chat with animal crab and I I loved her take on that idea of sharing parenting and yes. how men's roles kind of need to change uh, for in order for women to progress yes um but they still can't bloody give birth to the baby. <laughs> no, there are some things that unfortunately are still beyond us. Um, yeah. But I, I love, I love that book too. I like, mm. I adore um, Annabelle Crabbe's work, and I loved that piece of research that that she did and how she articulated it, and that idea of we've done all this work over the last fifty years getting women into workplaces, mm. and that work is we're getting close to that work being done. But the flip side of that is getting men out, and not yeah. in an awful like boot out all the men kind of way no. but in the we haven't supported uh men to to be outside the workforce and to be outside yeah. the paid workforce and to be doing work that is meaningful and important and valuable and the you know primary aspect of that is the caring work mm. whether that's caring for children whether that's caring for elderly relatives whether it's caring for people with a disability whoever it is yeah. um but valuing that caring role and i my husband and I spent a year, both of us working four days a week and we'd both have a day at home uh, with our little boy and then we'd have the weekends together, obviously. And that was the best period. I think that was the best period so far that we've had of sharing care in a really even-handed wow. way. Um, and it's a, it's not an easy relationship to get right. And as your child's needs change and as both of your career needs change, it has to keep moving around. Like you can't stay in our little four-day utopia forever, no. sadly. Um, but I think – being equal partners in that discussion and making yourselves equal decision makers yes. in how you're going to raise your family as soon as you possibly can mm. um, is, I think, a really important part of parenting. Oh, 100%. I also found the whole process changed me fundamentally as a person. Yeah. Just like, I, and it was a really hard transition. Like that shock turned into a huge change. Did you find you changed? Oh, yeah, for sure. I, um, Someone said, I can't remember who it was, but someone said to me, um, it was a former work colleague from politics, a guy, and he said to me about nine months after I had Ruffy, um, he said, oh, Jam, you've gone soft. <gasps> um, and he meant it as an insult, but I really decided that's a compliment. Like, yeah. I think I did go soft. Um, not completely soft, yeah. but <laughs> like, I think I'd, I think working in politics and managing a large team, I think I'd developed quite a hard edge mm -hmm. and I think I'd become quite uncompromising in mm. my opinions and willingness to empathize with other people. And I think when you – parenting is a great equalizer, right? Mm. Because it doesn't matter how smart you are or how hard you've worked or how many awards you've won or how many whatever, <laughs> yeah. baby doesn't care. You no, know what I mean? No. doesn't give two shits. No, um, no. And you can't be a better parent. Um, yeah. You can't learn to be a better parent at school or by studying. Or, no. You know, the only, only way you learn is by doing. And um, I think it – it really kind of put things in perspective for me. And I think there is that sense of, and I don't think it's about motherhood, I think it's about parenthood. I think you do develop that sense of everyone as someone else's kid. You know yes. how the first time you go out of the house after you've had a baby and you just look at women and you're like, and you've had a baby? Yes. And you had a baby? You all had babies. It's amazing. I know. And then you look at people and you're like, and you came out of someone's vagina? And yes. you? Like, and it's like this whole mystical world has opened up to you. Um, yeah, so I think you true. keep that for to an extent. And it's my yeah. new rule, actually, when I'm 
when I'm writing political opinion and stuff like that, I'm often having a go at people. Um, and my rule now is, would I be comfortable with that person's mother reading what I wrote? Yeah. <laughs> so when I'm writing about someone like Corey Bernardi, for example, who I mm. dislike with an extreme amount of hate, <laughs> oh, um, I'm always like, am I okay? Could I look Corey's mum in the face and say, I'm sorry? Yeah. I, you, good job, mum. But also could have done a better job. Yeah. And look at how this bloke's worked out and look at what he's saying. I'm not okay with that. And but I always and it does pull you back slightly. Yeah. To to kind of require you to be able to look the mum in the eye and say, No, I still stand by what I said about your kid. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Would you say that about Steve Price? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. No, I I would. I would. Okay. Um, yeah, that was Look, a really no, difficult situation. It was. For you. It really was. It was to to put it in context. I um, so the back. So I had this altercation with Steve Price on the yes. project the uh, day that Trump won, and it mm. went viral for God knows what reason because there was a lot bigger stuff happening in the world that day oh that I think God. we could have been reporting on other Absolutely. than him and I and having a spat. It was like spat. a second as well. It was a very short <laughs> amount of time. And we're both yeah. political commentators who do a lot of this stuff. So we're pretty used to it, right? Like yeah. I've, I've had much harsher exchanges with people on television than that. It's certainly mm. not the harshest one I've had. It's just the one that got all the attention. But the background for me that day was that I had been commissioned the day before by my editor to write a piece celebrating Hillary Clinton's election oh. and what it would mean for women. <laughs> oh, no. So I'd been sitting in front of the television all day watching the numbers come in, oh. preparing to write this piece. And early on in the day, the numbers looked really good for Clinton. Like mm. everyone was like, yeah, yeah, going well. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we all know how this is going to go. And I'm writing my piece and then I'm slowly kind of deleting lines and being like, oh, need to pull this back a bit. And then suddenly Trump's winning and suddenly he's won. Oh, God. And then I get this last minute call from the project who were like, we've just had this disastrous realisation that all the political commentators we've got on tonight are blokes. And we're about to have all these blokes talking about uh, this election outcome. We need to at least have a woman. Can you please rush in? And I like, you know, rushed over to the studio, hair and makeup, jumped on television. I was still emotional. I was still wearing my Hillary campaign (laughs) T-shirt. And then they asked me a question and I answered and then they asked me another question and Steve Price just answered my question and I was just so like uh, 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 I'm answering my question I'm only on here for five minutes and you're on for hours I'm gonna say my thing and then wow (laughs) then the internet didn't like anything I had to say and wanted to kill me so that was terrifying god how did you cope with that because I think it's such a huge issue for women this whole death threat rape threat yeah pylons that happen yeah. how did you cope with that look the the online world is a fierce one <clears throat> despite the fact that I don't even really like us talking about real world and online world anymore mm. because they are the same exactly this is no longer a matter of you know the people who after Charlotte Dawson took mm. her own life were like well why didn't she just get off Twitter and not read it it's and that. it's like the internet is not a voluntary space anymore. No. It's just part of the world. That's it's... like saying to me, lock yourself in your house and never come out. You'll be safe then. Yeah. Well, I would be, sure. But to work, to spend money, to engage with people, to talk to people, to communicate, to do anything in my life now, mm. I require being online. And it's the same for most people living in the developed world. So it's not like we can just exit this space anymore. No. But for women online, there's a lot of vitriol. It's That vitriol, I think, 
and there's this heightened sort of sense of anger towards everyone. And Mm. don't get me wrong, I have some male friends who have been treated appallingly online as well. But there's something about women on the internet who have opinions where the abuse that you receive is particularly sexual Mm. and particularly violent in nature. Mm. So my friend does, you know, Steve Price does something and people go, you are an asshole, you're a dickhead, you're this, you're that, you can fuck off. Now, none of that is nice. That, That is awful and we shouldn't speak to people like that. I don't like that. But that is different to what I receive, which is you should kill yourself, you should be sterilized, I'm going to rape you with a pole. Like that is, <laughs> oh that is how people respond. Oh um, and it is worse for women of color mm. and it is particularly bad for women of color who wear a headscarf. That has been my experience of, of mm. the internet and I think that is worthy of some discussion and some consideration because there's very little you can do about that because no. if someone walked up to me on the street and threatened to kill me, I have recourse. I can go to the police and do something about it. Online, and I say this as someone who has called the police and said people are saying they want to kill me, they can't do anything. They literally couldn't do anything. They can kind of take your complaints and that's they they, they tell you to block them. And it's like, yep, done that. that." And they tell you to complain to Twitter. Um, But there's not much you can do. And yes, 99% of your consciousness goes, this is a crazy person who's just blowing off steam. Yeah. And probably is sitting in his mum's basement (laughs) typing, you know. Yeah. I don't need to worry about this person. No. 99% of your brain tells you that. And then there's a tiny little bit of you that goes, but what But what if this really is someone yeah. who can track down who I am and where I am? And the purpose of it is to make women scared and to get women to stop giving their opinion in the public domain. Yeah. Um, and that is something I refuse to do. <laughs> Absolutely, which is why you are such a champion of women and one of my heroes. Oh, thank you. No, it's absolutely true because the amount of um, kind of pushback towards women who voice an opinion and who are out there and loud and proud about it is insane. And and we just need more women like you to get out there and say what you think and keep pushing forwards, you know, the Clementine Fords of the world and the Annabelle Crabs and all those yeah. incredible women. Um, what and I, there is a real network yeah. of us. That's, I think, the loveliest thing. That's the one yeah. good thing that comes out of this stuff is that there is now, and I'm not going to say how we all communicate because that's secret. <laughs> Women's That's business. how we're bringing down all the men. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I am kidding. Yeah. Uh, it was a funny, funny joke. No, but let's um, have some old women's clubs, right? Yeah, I'd like an old girls club. Yeah. Um, we... Uh, look after one another. So when something like that happens now you and someone is under attack, if, if someone's going after Clem or something particularly awful is happening to a woman online, particularly here in Melbourne actually, mm-hmm. there's a real crew of us in the media now who kind of all move on in around someone to protect them. Sometimes really openly, you know, having a go back on Twitter or Facebook and often really privately, you know, texts and phone calls, making sure people are okay, making sure they're being looked after. Um and that has been one of the few positives that's come out of that kind of experience is this yeah. idea that there's a really great crew of uh, feminists, men and women, who um, believe in looking after each other in those kinds yeah. of public spaces. And keeping women's voices heard. And Yeah. Yeah, it's so wonderful. I, I wanted to finish because I know you have to go soon. What I loved in your book was when you spoke about shine theory yes. at the end. Um, do you want to tell us what that is? Yeah, so shine, if you've ever been in – if you've ever been in one of those meetings where you make your point and then somehow you're 10 minutes into the meeting and no one really heard you yes. um, and somehow it didn't really get picked up and then someone else, usually a man, makes the same point and everyone thinks he's a hero and you're like, sorry, what? Yeah. Like, didn't I say that? Um, Shine Theory is about that. So it sort of came out of this um, idea. It's a woman called Valerie Jarrett who worked for the Obama administration and she 
uh, had the experience of the few women who worked in the White House at that time found that they were having this problem consistently. They were just not getting heard. Their ideas weren't getting to the top. Um, They were frustrated with their access to the president. So they kind of bunkered down together and agreed that they would basically use the limited power they had to help one another. So instead of just having to back their own ideas in, which women often feel anxious about doing, they would back each other in. And one of the things I've noticed is that women in workplaces are so willing to back someone else. They're willing to back (laughs) another woman massively. So what they would do is if person A said something and it kind of got missed, person B would then back reference and go, hey, remember when she said blah, 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 or I thought that was a really good point, or so-and-so said this earlier. Mm. And they would just keep reinforcing each other's points of view. They would keep paying it forward and paying it back. And they would sort of lift one another up, help one another to shine. And over time, it meant that their ideas started being uh, taken up more often and their voices were getting heard more often because they were basically using one another as an amplification technique. (laughs) Um, And I love that idea. I love that idea of saying, hey, instead of just focusing on me as an individual and my career and where I'm going, I am going to recognize that my success in this workplace is integrally tied up with the success of other women in this Mm. workplace. So I am going to put my efforts towards working as a collective to raise the outcomes for women generally rather than just for me as an individual Mm. because in the end the individual is less important than the good of the group. Yeah, I totally believe that. That idea that Michelle Obama spoke about where you don't shut the door behind you. You Exactly, you You put down the ladder and pull someone up. Yeah, Yeah. and I think it's, you know, that's a hard demon to fight, I think. You know, I think a lot of us have had that experience where you look at someone who's younger than you or less experienced who moved up the ladder really Mm. quickly and you kind of look at them and go, hey, hold on, I had to like, I worked really hard, right? (laughs) That was really hard for me and you should do it tough because I did it tough. Yeah. But really... Do we think that? Was that the point? Like Mm. I am going to take pride in the fact that it is easier for another woman to do the kind of work I've done. If I did anything that made it easier for her – awesome like yeah. that that's got to be something we take pride in right and i think we've got to fight that demon that said i did it tough so she should have to do it tough. thanks for listening to our show you've been listening to a podcast with me your host claire 20 and jamila risby if you'd like to buy her book not just lucky i'd highly recommend it you can find it at any good bookstore and you can find more about jamila risby at her website jamilarisby.com.au to find more of our shows uh, scroll back in your podcast feed we're on iTunes at Just Make The Thing or on any of your favourite podcast apps you can also find all of our Planet Broadcasting Network shows at www.planetbcasting.com and we have so many there that are awesome. I did an interview with my husband James on how he does his things to Sunday movies and also I did an interview with Will Anderson and just lots of open-hearted chats with my friend Chanel about how we're going creating our things. So if you're someone out there trying to start something or trying to keep on making it like I am at the moment, uh, I'd love you to check out our shows. You can also follow us at Twitter at Make The Thing or on Facebook at Just Make The Thing or me at Mrs. Sunday Movies on Twitter. And I'm also on Instagram at Claire Tonti. So I'd love to see you over there as well. And if you want to shoot us an email, you can email us at justmakethethingpod at gmail.com. Okay, guys, I hope you have a great week. I hope you keep on making the things and starting all those things. And I'll chat to you soon. Bye.